This evening we are going to finish the last of the seven statements of Christ uh, covering uh, two, the last two, six and seven. Uh, as we look at them, would you join me in prayer? Father, we give you our, our hearts and our minds. May they be attentive to the Spirit as he teaches, as he reminds us of the, of the cost of the Savior uh, on this Good Friday. And we thank you for uh, securing our salvation. And as we remember and reflect upon your words, uh, might they not just be words to us, but might they motivate us uh, to godly living and to sharing our faith uh, and to giving our lives wholeheartedly to you. Thank you for this day, and we praise you for it in our Lord's name. Amen. As a pastor, I've been in uh, many situations where I was with people uh, as they were uh, passing away. Uh, and what is interesting is uh, most people, when they get near the end of life or are in some kind of drug-induced uh, coma, so they, they don't really know what's happening. And so I haven't really had a lot of conversations with people as they've passed into God's presence. Um, one of my neighbors, when I was a new pastor, his name was Frank, uh, had a brain tumor, and so the family asked me to go visit with him, so I went to the hospital, uh, and they said he uh, was comatose, wouldn't be able to speak with me. Uh, but as I went into the room, identified who I was, uh, opened the scriptures to read to Frank. Um, even though he couldn't speak to me, uh, I, I noticed he was crying, that there were tears going down his cheeks. And uh, it was um, apparent to me that he knew exactly who I was and why I was there, but he couldn't speak to me. And I've always wondered, uh, as I prayed for, for Frank, uh, what, what would have been his last words? Uh, what would he have said? Uh, and I hope one day when I see him in heaven, I, I can ask him, what, what did you want to say to me when you couldn't speak? When you think about Jesus, uh, after uh, the entire crucifixion event, uh, being able to speak is mind-boggling, that he was able to utter seven statements from the cross. And we know uh, from 9 o'clock to, to noon on that uh, fateful day, uh, the things that he said. He said three statements prior to noon. The first one he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Uh, that is in reference to the crucifixion detail that gambled away his clothes. Uh, he paused uh, in his pain to be merciful to them. Uh, he then told the repentant thief in Luke 23, 43, uh, today you will be with me in paradise. Again, uh, giving hope uh, to a man who was hopeless. Uh, and then in, right before noon in John 19, 26 and 27, uh, he looked at his mother at the foot of the cross and said, woman, behold your son. Uh, then he looked to John, uh, his disciple and his cousin and said, behold your mother, translated, take care of my mom. Amazing selflessness that you hear from Christ. At, uh, as we saw last uh, Sunday, at noon, uh, the, Father, uh, the Heavenly Father sent darkness to the earth, uh, turned down the lights of the cosmos, and it became uh, eerily dark uh, from noon until 3 o'clock when Christ passed away. Uh, as we approach the 3 o'clock hour, we know the next statement that Christ made, his fourth statement, was Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know at that point, the Lord was feeling uh, the weight of the sin of the world of all time on his shoulders. And we know at that time in the darkness, uh, he could feel the Father in his holiness turning as it were his face from the sun, which had never happened. After that, uh, in the darkness, uh, Jesus said in John 19, 28, uh, I thirst, which is just a major understatement. 
after all he had been through to say that. And we know that one of the soldiers, they always stood ready uh, with uh, wine vinegar at the foot of the cross uh, to put it on a sponge, on a stick, and put it up uh, to the, the mouth of a person on a, on a crucifixion uh, pole and to, to help quench their thirst to a certain degree. It helped deaden the pain as well. But how ironic, as we said last Sunday, that he who is the water of life said, I thirst. But he thirsted so that one day we wouldn't have to thirst. So he took the wine on the stick, the vinegar. And then he made another statement uh, in John 19, verse 30, uh, which is most amazing. It, right before 3 o'clock when he passed away and gave up his spirit, it says in John 19, verse 30, Therefore Jesus had received the sour wine, and then he said, it is finished. Uh, in your text, there's usually an exclamation point there. Tetelestai is the word in Hebrew. Uh, tetelestai is a perfect tense verb. And a perfect tense verb means it's a past act with an abiding result, an abiding uninterrupted result. He could have used another verb there to say the same thing. And when you see the perfect tense in the Greek text, you know it's there for good reason. And this is why grammar is so important because it's inspired why the Holy Spirit picked that particular verb, the perfect tense, because he wanted to underscore the fact Jesus did, who spoke Greek, when he said to Telestai, it is finished. He wanted to say the entire redemptive program of my father is now complete. There's not one more thing you can add to it. It is, it is complete in its totality. It is finished. How much does our world try to add to the work of Christ? You cannot. He says the work of redemption is finished. You have to ask yourself just well, what was finished when he screamed that in the darkness? Uh, Peter later writes in First uh, Peter chapter 1 these words. He says, Knowing that you as a Christian were not redeemed with the perishable things like silver and gold uh, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed, he says, with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. Which lamb? Well, he says well, it was the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he has appeared in these last times for the, your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. What, what Peter says is before the foundation of the world was made, before the cosmos was uttered into existence, God the Father who is omniscient knew, if I create this cosmos there's, and I put people in a garden, I know what's going to happen. And God knew in his omniscience what would happen. But out of love for us, from what we see from the scriptures, uh, he put us here. And this is an area where uh, the finite mind can't probe the infinite mind as to why did God exactly do what he did. But we know from Peter that before the foundation of the world, uh, he prepared the lamb to be slain. Amazing, isn't it? He already knew what he was going to do to redeem us so that we could have a relationship with him. But Christ uh, became the sacrifice. He said, it is finished, to Telestai. And so if you go back through biblical history, you can, you can kind of highlight quickly what he finished. Go back to Adam and Eve, who initially sinned and brought sin into the world. Uh, when Adam and Eve sinned, uh, according to G Genesis 3.21, uh, it says, after their sin, that God clothed them with animal skins. Uh, the intimation here is that God killed the animals to cover them, which means you do not have coverage for sin unless an a, appropriate animal is slain to cover you. That's the implication. What was finished? Well, the need for a prescribed sacrifice. Uh, if you go to their children, Cain and Abel, we know that uh, Cain and Abel came to worship God one day. Uh, Abel uh, brought from the firstborn of his flock the fat of what he had to offer to God. And when you, when you look at what Cain brought, he, he brought uh, produce. Uh, 
Well, we know which one God accepted. He accepted the sacrifice, the animal of Abel, because that was acceptable to him. And through that particular uh, incident, we see that it matters greatly how you approach God. Cain said, I just want to come how I want to. And, and, and Abel said, no, I'm going to come the way God has prescribed. Scholars uh, theorize that both boys knew exactly how to approach God. You needed a sacrifice. One came however he wanted to. And the other one said, no, God said there has to be a sacrifice. What was finished? The need to bring a sacrifice. But we see that it matters greatly how you approach God. Abraham, we know, was asked by God to sacrifice his son Isaac. Uh, and Isaac, uh, the dutiful, loving son, obeyed his father. And we know how in Genesis 22, that whole story played out. As right before, the old man is going to sacrifice his beloved son. God stops him, gives him a substitute sacrifice. Uh, and in that whole episode, we see the great picture, that foreshadowing of the father who would one day send the son uh, to be the sacrifice. It was a beautiful image. What was finished? The need for the father to send his son to die for sin. What was finished? Uh, well, when you go forward to God's battle with Pharaoh and uh, freeing his, his people from uh, bondage, uh, the, the plague, uh, the death of the firstborn, uh, Passover, they had to slay uh, the lamb and they had to paint the blood over the doorposts of the house. And if you didn't believe by faith that you needed to do that, when the death angel came down your street, firstborn in your house died, you had to believe God is going to do this. And so you would slay the animal, the, the lamb, and you would paint the doorpost of your house. And in that, God would then provide coverage. Jesus, as we see when you look to the New Testament, becomes the ultimate Passover lamb who dies on Passover. And when his blood is applied to your life in a mystical way at the moment of faith, uh, God's death angel, as it were, passes over you and you have life. What was finished? Well, Christ was the Passover lamb, the Passover lamb. When God eventually uh, taught the Israelites how to worship him in the Old Testament, uh, in the tabernacle, and then later in the temple, uh, he spent the entire book of Leviticus telling them how to approach him who is holy. And the first six chapters, he tells them in chapter one, you must bring a burnt offering. It has to be a, it has to be a lamb of the first year. It has to be the best you have to offer to me. You have to confess your sin on that lamb. This is how you approach me. How you approach me matters greatly. What was finished? Well, Jesus became the ultimate burnt offering. He finished all of that. When the prophets prophesied of the coming of the Messiah, uh, what he would do, Michael chapter five, verse two, uh, tells us that he's, where, is he, where he's gonna be born. He's gonna be born in Bethlehem. He also tells us he's gonna be the eternal one born in Bethlehem, so God's coming. Micah, who's a contemporary of Isaiah, uh, merely echoes some things that Isaiah says. Isaiah 53, great chapter of the suffering servant, the Messiah who would die for the sin of the world. It says, surely our griefs he, the Messiah, bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, not his. He was bruised for our iniquities, not his iniquities. He goes on to say, the hastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by our scourging we are healed. He's speaking of salvation, cleansing of sin. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall, not on us, but on him. I remember sitting down after my wife's twin sister passed away when she was 33, and my, that Jewish side of my wife's family and my sister-in-law uh, came. 
by our house on her way back up to uh, Napa in California. And she asked me, because I had done the service, I just don't see the Messiah in the Old Testament. And I said, well, then you, you need to read the Old Testament. He's everywhere. And I took her to Isaiah 53. And we were sitting on the back patio one night, and she said, I have never heard these things before. Now you have. Now you know who that suffering servant is. It was the Messiah who took our sin. What was finished? That prophecy uh, from the pen of Isaiah that one day the suffering servant, the Messiah, would come and take the iniquity of all mankind on himself and pay the penalty for that sin so that we could be free when we come to him in faith. That was what was finished. Tetelestai. Finished. The last thing that he said uh, is in Luke 23, verse 46 right before three o'clock when the Passover lamb was slain over at the Temple Mount, just maybe, I don't know, about a mile and a half away. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Have you ever thought about this? He, the Lord of glory, the Lord who made all things, he had to release his spirit. He had to lay his life down as he said he would. He had to do it himself. In John 10, remember what he said. He says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. See, nobody could take it from him. He had to lay his life down. He says, I have other sheep which are not of this full, but I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they'll, they will uh, become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so I can take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. He's now said it three times. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Fourth time. He says, this is the commandment I've received from my father. He said, Rome could not kill me unless I laid my life down. The Jews could not turn me over to the Romans to, to crucify me unless I permitted them to do it. So right at three o'clock, when the sacrificial lamb was slain, Jesus gave up his spirit after he screamed to Telestai, it is finished. When that happened at three o'clock, and bear in mind, if you study the scriptures, um, this is not coincidental because that's right when they're sacrificing the Passover lamb over at the temple. So while the Passover lamb is being slain in the temple by the priest who've rejected the true Passover lamb, the true Passover lamb is dying outside the city gate on a hill on a cross. From the book of Matthew, we find this interesting thing that happened after Christ gave up his spirit. It says in verse 51 of Matthew's account of this event, it says, at, the, at that moment when Jesus said this, the curtain of the temple was torn into from the top to the bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split and the tombs broke open. And then what happened? He says, the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Wouldn't you have gotten converted right there? So they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and they appeared to many people. Last two things Christ said were, what was the last thing? I give up my spirit. Prior to that, he said it is finished. The redemptive program of the Father is now complete. And when he gives up his spirit, notice the amazing things that happen. Number one, there is a tearing of the veil, the massive veil in the temple that separated the holy place uh, from the most holy place, the holy of holies, the place where the priest could go as opposed to where God was in the, in the, in the holy of holies. That massive uh, curtain was split. It was uh, 
60 feet by 30 feet, the curtain. It was as thick, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, it was as thick as a man's hand. Thick. It's hard to just tear a towel, let alone to tear a massive veil like that. Imagine the irony of this. The priests are sacrificing the Passover lamb. The true Passover lamb, the final one, the true one, Jesus, is being sacrificed outside the city. And when he gives up his spirit... The father looks down and says, I'm, I'm tearing that veil in half because now there's no longer a separation between uh, God and man. Now Christ has opened the way to me, to anybody who comes to Christ. Imagine the moment. From the top to the bottom. Why not from the bottom to the top? Well, think about it. God's coming down from heaven and going, that's my son outside the gate who just paid the penalty for man's sin. He's the true Passover lamb. He starts at the top where he is and tears it down to the bottom where we are and, and makes it available for us to come to him boldly. Boldly. What were the priests doing about that time that Jesus was doing this? Uh, if you go to the Jewish uh, encyclopedia, uh, it's, on, it's online if you want to find it. J- JewishEncyclopedia.com has an article called Passover Sacrifice. Notice this, the irony of this statement says the killing of the Passover lamb took place in the court of the temple and might be performed by a layman. Although the blood had to be brought, caught by a priest and the rows of priests with gold or silver cups were in their hands, they stood in a line from, uh, from the temple to the court of the altar where the blood was sprinkled. These cups were rounded on the bottom so they could not set them down. Uh, for in that case, the blood might coagulate. The priest who caught the blood as it dropped from the victim, the slain lamb, then handed the cup to the priest next to him, receiving from him an empty one. And then the full cup was passed along the line until it reached the last priest who then sprinkled the contents of the blood on the altar. While they're doing that, what is the father doing? He's ripping the veil. Do you think that was a quiet thing? Have you ever ripped anything? You've never ripped anything? I think that was one of the loudest things that you could hear in the eerie darkness that day. Remember, it's still dark. It's like pitch black. It's three o'clock. The cosmic lights have been turned down. They're having to feel their way through of passing this cup with the blood in it to sprinkle it on the altar. And then there's this massive ripping sound coming from the holy place. And God says, no longer do I need these kind of priests because my son, the high priest, just became the sacrifice and laid his life down. What happened when Christ gave up his spirit? God says now there's full access for people who come to Christ by faith. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, uh, the author says, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, he then says, here's what you should do. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. He says, because God the Father ripped that veil in half and allowed you a a sinner who becomes a saint at the moment of faith in Jesus, he says, you can walk into the presence of God's holy of holies and do it with what kind of mindset? Fear and trembling? No. He says, you as a son or a daughter can walk before the holiness of God and say, I, Father, because he's made the way. He says, you can do it with total confidence. Confidence. The second thing that happened uh, there was a, a massive earthquake, uh, and I understand this because I'm from California. I've, I don't even know how many earthquakes I've been in. 
Uh, I've been in earthquakes when you can hear the ground crunching under your feet. feet. That is not a fun sound, that crunching noise. And that's what the scriptures say. There was a massive earthquake that happened when Christ gave up his spirit. Why did God the Father, in the middle of the darkness, in the middle of all this, send an earthquake? I think two things. Number one, he wanted to show who was really in control. It was the Trinity. It was in control of what was happening on the hill that day. The other other thing that he did is he showed that his son had earned the right to use earthquakes in judgment when he comes back as the lion. Now he's the lamb. He's coming back as a lion. Isaiah 24, is, uh, chapters 24, 25, and 26 are what are called a small apocalypse. It's a, it's a miniature version of the book of Isaiah, of, of, of Revelation, in the middle of Isaiah. Same chronological flow of Revelation. It's quite interesting. It says in chapter 24, says, at the beginning of the tribulation, the earth is broken up, the earth is split asunder, the earth is violently shaken by God. The earth reels like a drunkard. It sways uh, like a hut in the wind. So heavy upon it is the guilt of its rebellion that it falls, never to rise again. In that day, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, will punish the powers in the heavens. Those are the demonic foes and the kings of the earth, all those who rebelled against him. This is Jesus. Why was there an earthquake there on the hill that day when Christ died and gave up his spirit? He wanted to show I'm in full control of what's happening to me. I can control earthquakes, but to also set the groundwork for when I come back the next time as the lion, there's going to be earthquakes to get man's attention. In Revelation chapter 16 uh, is one case of many points in the Revelation. Toward the end of the tribulation, we read in verse 18 of chapter 16, then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. He then says, no earthquake like it ever occurred since mankind has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake that the great city of Jerusalem split split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell flat. Awesome. And who's bringing the judgment? Well, the, the man that they crucified as the lamb over here on Passover. But when he comes back in the second coming, he comes back as the lion to set up his kingdom third thing that happened on the hill that day after Christ gave up his spirit the earthquake opened tombs in Jerusalem I've seen them when I take people on archaeology tours the tombs they're everywhere they're like honeycombed in the valley of Kidron they're all in the hillsides they're on they're at the base of the wall um, on the eastern side of the gate they're they're everywhere the tombs could you imagine being in a situation where it's dark eerily dark from 12 to 3 you hear echoing all throughout the town the ripping of this veil. This earthquake then causes tombs to open and people start standing up out of the tombs. Get your attention? Uh, yeah. It says that those people came back into town and gave witness. I, I don't know. This is one, If people say the Bible is not interesting, they have not read it. I've always thought to myself as I've read these texts, could you imagine you're one of these people? It doesn't even tell you how long they've been dead. You could have been dead a thousand years. You're walking in heaven, enjoying the glory of heaven, and all of a sudden God says, hey, Yehuda, I need you. Huh? Bam, you're back on the earth. I died before, you're going back. Do you get the debate, discuss this? No. Why did God do this? Well, he sends them back into town for testimony. 
Because if Jesus is God, he can not only control nature, but he can control death itself and bring resurrected life to his saints. And he just raises a few people to send them back into town so they can give testimony. Imagine if you'd done your grandmother's funeral like 15 years prior and she comes and knocks on your door and you're not a Christian. I bet you you trusted Christ right then, right? When grandma says, uh, I'm on a mission from God. He sent me here to you tonight. Jesus, uh, his death was powerful because it not only sent an earthquake, it released people that had been dead for many years to come back to life because he was, as he said to Mary and Martha, when he raised Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. He brought them back as testimony. There was one more thing that happened on the hill that day. It says in verse 54 of Matthew 27, there was a soldier there. He was an officer. It says a centurion, there was a, there was a centurion, uh, and those who were with him who were keeping uh, guard over Jesus. So this is a centurion who's equivalent to an army captain. He's over the crucifixion detail. If we, it says when he saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, he became very frightened and said, quote, truly, this was the son of God. Truly, this was the son of God. Came from a mid-level officer, an army captain, kind of the backbone of the Roman soul, uh, army, a centurion. If anyone had, uh, he was in charge, by the way, of 80 men in his little uh, unit called the centuria. Uh, this particular man, if anybody had seen any battle in his years of service, he had hand-to-hand -hand combat. Uh, if anyone had been hardened by the battles that he had been in, he, he was hardened. If anyone had regrets over friends that he lost in battles on foreign fields, he had regrets. Uh, if any man suffered from PTSD, he did. Dreams that woke him up in the middle of the night, things that he had seen that he wished he hadn't seen. See, if any man was primed by the Spirit of God to look at all these events and connect the dots, it was that man. Even in the death of Christ, God is working on the life of a hardened soldier to say, son, you need to become my soldier. Never had that soldier heard words from a crucified criminal like he heard that day. Words like what? You tell me, what were the seven words that he, that he would never heard these before? What was the first one? Father, forgive them for they, these soldiers don't know what they're doing. What else did he hear? Were you here for the sermons? What, what else did he hear? Today you're going to be with me in paradise. Don't you know he's standing there thinking, paradise, what's, what's that? Where, where, where is that? What's that guy talking about? Etc. cetera. Well, what, what is he, why did he scream? It is finished. Most of these prisoners never have any ability to even speak at the end, and he screams it is finished. What does he mean by that? He'd never heard that before. Never had he seen such love and compassion from the man hanging on the cross who cared about the other men that were with him. Never had he seen darkness envelop the earth from noon to three like he did that day. Never had he seen a strategic earthquake occur right when the man in the middle gave up his spirit and after he screamed it is finished. How could he explain that? Never would he forget the eerie sound of the temple veil being ripped on the other side of the wall by the temple. Never had he seen tombs opened 
with people walking out of them in grave clothes and they're quite alive. How did they find life? Well, the giver of life just raised them. See, that was a testimony. You know what that soldier did? He connected all the dots. He took all the logical evidence and he made an inference from that. What was his inference? Truly, that man is the son of God. This is coming from a polytheist. That's God. I think walking around in heaven right now uh, is, uh, there's two, two interesting people. There's a man with a criminal record, a rap sheet a mile long that was forgiven in an instant and he's been walking around with Jesus for 2,000 years, sticking close to him, that criminal who's in paradise with Jesus. And I think close behind him is, is a rough and tumble hardened soldier whose heart was plowed by the spirit of God who came to God and found life. I would be remiss in my job as a pastor if I didn't ask you, have you connected the dots concerning who Jesus is? He's the Messiah, he's the savior, and he came to pay for your sin, my sin. And the minute you look to him and say, truly, he's the son of God who died for my sin, you become his child. If you have never done that, I pray this is the night that you do that in the quietness of your car, your home, on a walk, wherever you are. And then you can join that crowd in heaven and they're walking around behind Jesus. Good to have you in God's house tonight. We are going to partake of communion to remember our Lord. We've been doing it all month as we've prepared. So I would ask you to prepare yourself as uh, Pastor Bob comes to lead us. It's a solemn time. Uh, you should confess your sin and to prepare yourself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of the son, well orchestrated uh, down to the very words that were said at the right time. They're most instructive to us. We remember that our Lord hung on that cross for our sin, not his sin. And we remember by partaking of communion today as you commanded us to do. So bless us as we do this and remember you who've done so much to secure faith and salvation for us. Amen.